This episode of Policing Matters is sponsored by Kenwood. We are committed to providing modern turnkey critical communication solutions for today and the future. Hello and welcome back, and thank you for tuning in to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, use of force has always been a topic high on the list of law enforcement discussions. Surely, over the past years, we've seen examples of varying degrees of force and how they are interpreted by the public and the media. Some high-profile events have led to legislation changes in limiting force options all the way to changes in types of force used, such as the carotid or what they're calling chokeholds. Some cities have banned the use of pepper spray and tear gas, rubber bullets, and, and the like at demonstrations and riots. Well, now more than ever, it is critical for law enforcement professionals to understand and know when to deploy force options wisely and appropriately, and maybe to help educate the legislators, the media, and the public as well. Well, we've got a great guest today who can certainly uh, answer the questions. He's a combat veteran, veteran police commander with extensive knowledge and expertise in SWAT operations and as a trainer in force options. Retired Commander Sid Heal retired from the LA Sheriff's Department and for 33 years has shared his knowledge in his book titled Concepts of Non-Lethal Force understanding force from shouting to shooting. He has three college degrees, graduated from training with California Post, Center for Leadership Development, Command College, and he's a graduate of the FBI National Academy. Welcome to Policing Matters, Sid Heal. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you. You've written uh, several articles and books, and uh, this one seems pretty timely. What, what inspired you to address the topic now? The thing that I kept getting asked, and the thing that was clearly a gap in the knowledge, particularly for policy making and decision making, uh, was a lack of understanding of the concepts. Everybody was looking for this magic bullet, this technology that was going to solve a lot of their problems. In reality, there was no single technology, it was rather an integration of a number of technologies. But without the concepts of employment, uh, they tended to be disorganized and following the path of least resistance with no clear objective or end state. And so as a result of that, uh, I had, well, I've read just about everything I could get uh, for years, but it was the questions that I was getting that were really forcing me to think about this. And I had started the book some years ago and had actually abandoned it in the belief that somebody else was going to write it. Uh, it never happened. Uh, everybody still focused on the history or the technologies or the uh, tactics and techniques and procedures, but nobody was really dealing with the concepts. Uh, and if they did, it was usually very limited uh, or very narrow in focus. Uh, and so as a result of that, uh, I had been encouraged, highly encouraged, to just sit down and write what I was talking about on paper at least once. 
And it wasn't really until 2018 that I finally decided that if I didn't do it, I'd probably never do it. So I spent all of the rest of 2018 and most of 2019 uh, finishing it and polishing it and having it edited uh, before I sent it to the publisher. So, Yeah, do you think the issue, so I mean, the timing I think is perfect. And you think, do you think use of force is so prevalent now because of the, the high media uh, uh, incidents that we've seen? And, and what should be the police leader's response when, when these things come out? Well, uh, it seems like it's prevalent now because things have so polarized that some of the suggestions are ludicrous, uh, absurd, laughable for everybody except the ones involved in the fight. Uh, for those, it's entirely pragmatic. So it's always been uh, prevalent in, in that sense. Yeah, I think that uh, law enforcement leaders and managers and decision makers and policy makers need to be looking at this uh, very scientifically. But the sad part about it is they are not the final arbitrators. In many cases, they're being forced into roles which are really untenable. Uh, we have reached a point, in my opinion, that law enforcement officers are being forced to decide whether to act and be ridiculed or wait until it becomes so irrefutable that anything they do is better than the, the alternative as it, it's turning out. The ability to use some kind of intermediate options relieves a lot of the pressure on this. And obviously those are intermediate force options. Yeah, well, you, you discuss a lot of them, but I think in, in terms of addressing the public and the media, it's great having someone with your experience. You've been on post commissions on SWAT and you've, you've experienced them. Your book, I, I want to get to a couple of the chapters and some of your experience of actually being a guinea pig in some of the use of force. But I think, <laughs> I think one of your, your chapters, the voodoo science and the media really explains it and says, um, if I can quote, simply put much of the science cited by detractors of non-lethal options is either fundamentally flawed, misunderstood, mischaracterizes the evidence or ignores influences beyond the control of the user. And then you talk about, although it may take on any number of forms, it can be described as voodoo science. Voodoo science is a catch-all term for any junk science that misleads or mischaracterizes the evidence. And you break it down, you break down uh, the types of uh, force options and, and you break it down even in the, the root of the, the descriptions uh, from we, what we used to call non-lethal weapons and then we changed to less, less lethal weapons and, and the so on. So uh, if you were to hold a, a, a conference or a class, a training class, on um, captains and above in an agency, whether sheriff's department or police, what would, you, what would you stress on them the most? I would stress the fact that the concepts are far more important than the individual weapons. In many cases, they wouldn't even qualify under the conventional understanding of a weapon. I'll just give you one example. We have chemical agents that we use in Somalia uh, like sticky foam. Sticky foam uh, would literally 
stick your feet to the pavement. And one of the things that came up when we were dealing with this is that we kept trying to get the military to use the nomenclature that had evolved in the Department of Justice. Because we never use non-lethal in the term in the Department of Justice. That's a Department of Defense preference. And so as a result of that, I was constantly talking to the Staff Judge Advocate General, uh, Colonel Lorenz. Uh, I'm sorry, Colonel, uh, can't think of his name now. In any event, what happened was is that one of the questions he posed to me, hypothetical, was about this sticky foam. And he said, what'll happen if somebody gets shot in the face? And I said, sir, why, why would we shoot anybody in the face? He says, well, accidents happen. And I said, yes, accidents will happen. He says, well, will it stick their lips shut? Oh, yes, sir, it'll stick their lips shut. And he goes, well, then they'll die. I said, yes, sir, that's why we don't call it non-lethal. But what happened was, is that it was stupendously successful, far beyond any of our expectations. Uh, and there was a number of things. Now, flash forward about six months, I'm back from Somalia, and I'm doing a debriefing someplace on the East Coast with an Army uh, colonel that is just getting ready to deploy to the Balkans. And one of the things that uh, I was called in for was that they were picking up the things that we had not used or the things that were left over from Somalia and they were gonna take him into the Balkans. And I was quite surprised. Uh, obviously I understand, uh, you know, trying to save money and everything, but it was not a universal solution. And I don't think that he saw that because he was still looking at the success of Somalia without looking at what had changed from the Somalia to the Balkans. And so one of the things I said, sir, this, these aren't gonna work in, uh, in the Balkans, uh, and particularly in Serbia and Croatia and Herzegovina. And, uh, and he says, why not? They worked in Somalia. He said, sir, a lot of the stuff that we were using were impact munitions. Somalia has a very mild climate. People are dressed very lightly. Hmm. Uh, we don't have to worry about temperature changes and everything. And so we have a, a very realistic uh, anticipation that uh, the conditions are not gonna change from daylight to darkness or from uh, one day to the next. Not so in the Balkans, when you can get a 30 or 40 degree temperature change in 24 hours. I said, wearing a winter coat is the functional equivalent of body armor to an impact munition. And all of a sudden it hit him that uh, they wouldn't fit. I said, but sir, there's other things, there's other things. He says, for instance, I said, well, for one thing, he said, look at, I said, look at water. I said, water is environmentally benign. There's no side effects. There's it's probably the most tested option available. He says, what do you mean option? And I said that uh, if it's 12 degrees, spraying water on people is far better to get rid of them than tear gas. Uh, if you spray it on the ground and it freezes, it becomes an airy denial device. I said, really what happens is, is that you've got to look at the situation you're trying to resolve this holistic thing. But my point here is this, is that Water would not fit anybody's definition of a weapon, but it's how it's used, the intent that is more important than the particular device. And this is why the concepts are more important than the device. If you understand the concepts, they have nearly universal application, but the applications are completely contextual and will change on every set of circumstances. 
Yeah, those are those are great points that you make, including including the clothing and and in American policing, we've seen uh, clothing essentially stop the the impact um, bean bags and and other projectiles, uh, but the media and the public certainly don't recognize it. Um, in San Francisco, we had a, a, a fatal shooting of an individual who was shot several times with a, a beanbag shotgun with virtually no effect. And, and you know, when you have leaders, you know, American uh, government leaders saying things like, you know, why don't you just shoot them in the leg? Clearly they're not clear on the concept. I gotta tell you that is probably the most descriptive uh, sign of ignorance uh, <laughs> that I could use without mentioning any names. Uh, anybody that actually understands what a fight looks like realizes how difficult it is. Uh, they don't look like boxing matches. They don't look like wrestling. They don't look like MMA. Uh, they look like a dog fight. Uh, growling and hair pulling and gouging and biting and bleeding and screaming. And, and as a result of that, uh, a lot of people don't understand that as a general rule of thumb in a police combat shooting, we hit about half the people that we're trying to shoot. Of those that actually get hit, about half will actually die. Now, if you look at that statistically, that means that you have a three in four chance of surviving a lethal encounter with an American law enforcement official. And that's a pretty standard statistic that has not varied very much over the years. And so as a result of that, we need to have some intermediate options that provide us some degree of safety, including the suspects and especially the people that we're sworn to protect so that we have the ability to intervene without unnecessarily endangering those that we're trying to protect. Non-lethal options provide this intermediate uh, intervention. Yeah, and you do a great job of that in, in your book when you talk about these uh, encounters where uh, the measures are thought about and then they're deployed. Um, I'm thinking about the chapter with the individual in a car who's armed with a knife. He gets out, he gets in. Um, your officers break a window, throw the tear gas in. He's in, he's out, it's engulfed. He's hit with beanbag guns. He goes back in. He's still got the knife. And then uh, at the end of the day, I mean, it, it was a, a Herculean effort to, to take him into custody without fatally shooting him. And then, and then you recall um, something that, that uh, the brother of the suspect says later. Yeah, the, that's an actual incident. All of my uh, anecdotes uh, are used to illustrate the statistical uh, points. But in that particular case, uh, the brother walks up to the deputy that's testifying in court and thanks him for not killing his brother. Uh, and believe it or not, that plays out far more than people realize. Uh, one of the things when we deployed non-lethal options was, the, and I just tell you that I use the term non-lethal because most of my teaching has either been at an international level or at the Department of Defense. Uh, I do, do a lot of teaching on the Department of Justice, but it's frustrating to be constantly using these interchangeable words. Mm -hmm. So I just opted to use the Department of Defense definition. So when you hear non-lethal, also you can think less lethal, less than lethal, mission kill, soft kill, uh, minimal force, whatever you want to use, but I just opted to use non-lethal. But what happens is, is that 
these incidents occur in law enforcement on a daily basis, multiple times a day. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that the vast majority, all but two or three of the non-lethal options that are available to us are use what's called pain compliance, which means that they induce enough pain to uh, prevent defiance or encourage compliance. What they don't understand is that pain is highly subjective. What can be excruciating to one person can be mildly irritating to another. And so as a result of that, uh, we don't have a device like the phaser that works every time, man or woman, large or small, young or old, sick or healthy. Uh, it's not a size small fits all option. And so as a result of that, we are in a constant position of having to assess the situation and find a device that if available, uh, will provide the necessary intervention without unduly injuring somebody. That is tough. Matter of fact, in many cases, it's nearly impossible. One of the things that we discovered uh, is, is that without rules of engagement and solid training and policies, is that our officers and deputies accepted far more risk than we would have allowed had we been present at the situation. And so as a result of that, most of our options are for the protection of our own officers because they go to such great lengths and accept the subsequent risk that goes along with it to the point where we've also been killed trying to spare the life of the guy that's trying to kill us. It's called the revenge factor. And it was identified by a sociologist by uh, the name of Dr. David Klinger out of the University of uh, Missouri, St. Louis. And he said, it's a paradox in the sense that we are in the position of trying to spare the life of the guy that's trying to kill us. And he actually cites a number of incidents where our officers were killed. Sure, I could think I could think of some off the top of my head. And, and like you say, the, the, the incidents that result without a fatality of the offender uh, hardly ever make the media. It's never promoted that, look, the police did a great job here with this. So, and you, you, you actually uh, have a picture of a phaser, uh, not yet in, in use in, in uh, the world, but yeah, it'd be great if we had a phaser to set for stun or what have you. But uh, I mean, you describe, you know, pain compliance as being the rule, but then add in these other uh, factors of drugs or alcohol or mental illness. And then, I mean, all bets are off, right? You, you, you mentioned several times that a lot of times when we talk about these issues, we talk about a rational person who will make a decision based on, on what you're saying. But now, now we've got these, these other uh, factors. One of the things that, uh, people don't understand is that the vast majority of our critics, everything that they know about law enforcement, they learn by watching TV. Mm -hmm. And whether they're watching reality shows or not, they don't mimic the real life that we experience. Uh, they don't mimic the harsh time constraints, uh, the, the anguish, the, the multitude of factors that are impeding on this. And so as a result of that, and, and for sure, they cannot recreate the risk of failure. Either failure because it didn't work properly and we accidentally injured somebody 
or because it didn't work properly and we get killed because it didn't have the desired deterrent. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, is that only two right now uh, are truly not relying on pain uh, compliance. Uh, Tear gas, especially pepper spray, uh, will involuntarily close your eyes and make your nose run and things like that and cough and so forth. Uh, And the other one is the taser, which uses muscle tetanization. Now pain is present, but pain is rather a byproduct rather than the attendant effect. Everything else uh, is pain compliant. When I got back from Mogadishu, uh, I got interviewed at length on a number of occasions, and one of which was by Dr. Ken Stilley from the United States Air Force. This guy was brilliant beyond belief. Uh, And one of the things that he was assigned to do was to do what we would call a battle damage assessment in an attempt to determine how much of what type of force was gonna yield what results. And two or three days, we went over this day after day, hour after hour, until finally in frustration, I sensed, he said, well, just pick one, just pick one device. Uh, Because how do you compare a taser with an impact munition, with pepper spray, with uh, whatever else you wanted to try? Uh, And so what happened was I said, well, let's pick the impact munition the one out of the shotgun. That is our bread and butter in law enforcement. That's our most used device. And he says, why? I says, because it gives us the greatest standoff distance. Mm -hmm. It gives us the ability to impose force without accepting the risk of being killed if it doesn't immediately work. He says, okay, well, let's pick that one. I said, he says, you fire one, what happens? And my response was, well, Was it a man or a woman? What was he wearing? Where did it hit him? Was he under the influence? If he falls down and gets back up, does that count? And he goes, are all of those factors? And I said, alone and in any combination. And that's one of the things that is really different between the Department of Justice and Department of Defense. The Department of Defense has a fairly well-defined adversary. It's a male uh, in his late teens to late 20s in good physical condition. Uh, almost always not under the influence of drugs, mentally fit, capable of understanding the consequences of his actions. Uh, But on the other hand, in law enforcement, uh, that adversary can be a male or female, large or small, under the influence, mentally insane, completely sound, irrational because of anger, uh, and so many other factors. And so as a result of that, what works on an adversary that's consistent character has consistent characteristics is off the, the charts when we try to do this and apply it universally in the Department of Justice. Now, the irony is, is that the military has a lot more money and a lot more science. However, law enforcement has a lot greater need and no budget. <laughs> well, yeah, we have a lot of the field experience. One of the things that we say is the standard is not perfection. The standard is the alternative. Mm. One of the great ironies that people are going to find out very quickly, in fact, law enforcement is just simply waiting, is the fact when you remove a force option from us without replacing it, uh, you're usually condemning us to use either a harsher measure or abandon the situation altogether. Neither one of which are really going to be appealing to the, the American public who has a law enforcement function. And whether we have a duty to protect or not, that is certainly the expectation. And so as a result of that, if you remove the carotid restraint, which is one of the best and safest 
methods we've had to control violent, violent people without replacing it, what's going to happen is, is we're going to have to find something else that works. And somebody will say, and I'll just give you an example. I have been on everybody's hate list for the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, the Omega Group. I mean, I could go on. I was on everybody's hate list. They've called me a pain uh, merchant uh, and all kinds of things. In fact, in Dublin, uh, they uh, protested against me personally. Uh, long story. But the point I was trying to make is, is that we're trying to find something that will give us the ability to protect the public without the catastrophic consequences. When you take these things away or you don't allow us to use something uh, that has proven safer than the alternative, you have left us with a dilemma. Right. Either we can find a, an option that will provide it, which is usually harsher, or we just simply wait until it justifies the level of provocation justifies the use of the harsher measures, which is quite often lethal force. Right. And we're seeing all of that play out today because, uh, you know, frankly, uh, legislators are making these uh, laws that are so prohibitive that you do basically have gun hand to gun force options. Um, and then you have officers that are stuck in the middle. Maybe there's some hesitation, but we'll get into that in a second. Uh, I'd like to take a moment here to acknowledge our sponsor. At Kenwood, we make sure first responders have mission-critical radio systems that work, no matter what. When the mission is critical, no one has time for complexities or static or system failures. It has to work perfectly in the worst conditions. That's why Kenwood focuses on innovating, developing, and implementing the highest quality secure communication solutions to organizations whose mission is to protect and save lives. We ensure you will always have the lifeline you need when you need it. We make safe simple. Visit us online at www.efjohnson.com. And I am back with Sid Heal, retired Los Angeles Sheriff's Department commander, author, trainer on force options and special operations. Uh, great stuff that we're talking about here. Um, Let's take a, a glimpse into the uh, into the future. So in your book, you explain a variety of force options in today and many agencies uh, from pepper spray to less lethal munitions, whether foam projectiles, rubber bullets, stinger rounds, uh, electric charge weaponry. Um, but you also talk about experimental weapons or at least those in theoretical stages. We talked about the phaser, uh, but what do you see on the horizon coming to aid law enforcement to keep uh, line officers and protesters and even the offenders uh, from being seriously hurt or worse? Is there a force option that we can look to here now or in the near future? Theoretically or practically? <laughs> Well, I guess both, but uh, I mean, you know, I see the ads all the time on Police One about uh, there's a bolo device that shoots a bolo that will take your legs out. Um, there are other devices um, in your book. You talk about sound and you talk about heat. And uh, I mean, are those viable options? Uh, tell us about the heat weapon. That's really an interesting story. 
Let's just understand they're theoretical in the okay. sense that they work. You could have them tomorrow without a, a penny if the only thing you wanted to do was say, yes, you can use them. And I, I say that because there's a great irony in the fact that these things exist now, uh, but they're theoretical in the sense that they don't have the public support to actually use them. Mm. The device that you're particularly talking about has been around for, oh, since the 1990s, I was working on it. Uh, Raytheon developed it. Uh, it was a Department of Defense program. They have spent $40 million using it and developing it uh, and testing it on 11,000 subjects, of which two had minor injuries. It's the most uh, tested non-lethal option in history. And it is historical uh, significant in the sense that it is the first device that will allow adequate protection against lethal force. I mean, it's a game changer, hmm. but it has never been used to my knowledge for the simple reason is, is that there isn't the will uh, to be able to, to bring this forward. It uses a 95 gigahertz radio wave to heat human skin up, tickle the, the nerve endings uh, to about 130 degrees in two seconds. To give you an idea of what it would feel like, it would feel like stepping into a scalding shower. But the best part about it is there's no tissue damage. Even if you take it fully in the face with your eyes open, it doesn't bother the eyes or anything else. Mm. Uh, it exists right now as at least five prototypes that I'm personally aware of, but I'll give you just one example. One of the things that happened was that uh, during the end of my career, uh, we had some gang wars going on in the jail. The LA County Jail is the largest in the free world. And depending on the, the season and some other things, uh, we vary in population between 15 and 20,000 inmates. Needless to say, none of whom are in jail for their social coping skills. They don't get along well outside and they don't get along well inside. And so as a result of that, they fight over everything. Who gets to watch TV, what channel it's on, whether the mashed potatoes they got were bigger than a bigger serving than somebody else's. I mean, everything. And so what happened was two inmates had died. And as a result of that, I was brought in as one of the people to look at how do we resolve this? And this one thing that, that became obvious is that the non-lethal options that were available to us were inadequate and they had proven inadequate. We had tried them. One of the things that happened was is that the combatants would fight and then they would be surrounded by a lot of bystanders. There's nothing else to do in jail. So a good fight is as good of entertainment as anything else. But what happens is, is that that put us in the position of having to target bystanders to prevent the combatants. And so we would get sued for that. Well, one of the things that we had decided to, to do was to try to use the active denial system. And the Department of Justice was all over this and helped us. And they got $3 million for us to downsize the one that had been developed for the Department of Defense. And the idea was that we would mount it on the ceiling of this jail, on the ceiling because nobody could mess with it. And then what we could do is we could use it just like an electronic broom and sweep the non-combatants away harmlessly and then use conventional munitions on the combatants, which were far more harsher. The FCC revoked our clearance to use that because the ACLU complained that we hadn't checked with them. Now, I don't know how the FCC got into a social, uh, 
how, how would you say this social controversy, they're frequency deconflictors. Uh, but the ACLU somehow sees themselves as being part of the process that we need to go through to get this uh, approved. Now, interesting enough, I have no objection to that. <laughs> I know this is going to sound uh, uh, like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. Uh, we want public approval. I'm not sure that the ACLU represents the public to the same degree the elected officials were, but the elected officials were aware of it. So what happens is, is that regardless, uh, in fact, I talked to the ACLU about this personally, and I had this to say, if you're willing for us to use the more primitive methods that we've been using for the last 200 years, why would we spend $40 million to develop something better? Why not just skip all this extra effort and money and just go to what was conventional? Well, we don't like those either. And that's the problem. They don't have a better solution. They just don't like the one that we have. Well, the bottom line is that this device right now is sitting in a warehouse someplace in Tucson. Yeah, what is so right now that we have these devices. They are available. You could have them installed for virtually nothing. All it takes is for somebody that has the guts, and I mean that in the in the internal fortitude, the wherewithal, the the courage uh, to say, you know what, we're not willing to live with the consequences of these more primitive devices. And so as a result of that, uh, we understand that there's risk involved with these newer devices, but the consequences of a failure are certainly less damaging than the ones that we're using right now. And that's all it would take. Sure. So yeah, there are, there's the, the heat, there's the sound, uh, there's light, there are all these things that could work on large groups of people. You talk about you know this confined group of two warring factions in, in, in jail. Uh, demonstrations, they could certainly be um, effective. I guess it's gotta go back to the, the national um, whiteboard and discuss and everybody comes to the table and puts their two cents. And I can see uh, plain devil's advocate, I could see that their, their opposition as cruel and unusual um, as their their argument against but like you say what's what's the alternative is less lethal that may end up in in lethal or fatalities uh, at those scenes well hopefully it's a new day i mean we you know the use of force discussion is in the forefront we've heard the president of the united states the vice president and the new department of justice talking about it hopefully they'll tap experts and people with experience like yourself, um, hopefully IACP, PERF, major city chiefs, uh, sheriffs can all uh, take this to the table and, and ask you know, for the ability to use the options uh, rather than just keep stripping away like you're talking about carotid and, and some of these others. Pepper spray, gas uh, in some cities have been essentially banned. So, let me ask you in wrapping up, what's next for you? Um, retired commander, Sid Heal, what's next? Where are you going to be appearing? How can people find your book? Uh, the book is all over. It's, uh, Amazon has it. Uh, Barnes and Noble has it. Uh, if you're buying it for conferences or uh, classes, I would recommend you talk directly to the publisher because uh, you get a bigger discount when you buy them in bulk. Um, for me, uh, 
I'm going to go on teaching. Uh, I think that's, I've got such a personal investment in over these years and you can see that I'm still passionate about it. Uh, in some cases I'm frustrated. Uh, it gives me a forum. I don't turn down many opportunities to speak, uh, recognize the fact that this is my opinion, but after all this research, I'm comfortable providing anybody that has an interest with the research that I've got. I keep it electronic. Uh, and if, if you can tell me that you have a need to know, I'll send it to you. Uh, it, it's kind of frustrating that we're having this discussion in 2021 because I've had these discussions just about continually uh, since I really got into it in 1995. So we've got a quarter of a century has passed and we basically got the same devices, what we call in the early days, the low hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. um, what's really interesting is that the Department of Defense who prides themselves on being lethal uh, has shown at least as much and in some cases a greater interest than the Department of Justice. As far as uh, hopefully that they get a hold of experts, hope is a great companion, but it's a poor planner. I'm tired of hearing all the hope and talk. Uh, I discount it. Show me. I'm, do I'm done with the talking. Uh, I don't have to report to anybody. I don't have to worry about representing any other department. I don't have to worry about winning your hearts and minds. Uh, I'm just telling you what it is. And that's the way the book comes across. And I'll just tell you, if you read the book, you will find things that you don't find in other books. Things like sarcasm and ridicule and hyperbole and exaggeration. And they're done intentionally uh, to make sure that people understand this is not a new subject. And it's really not a conversation that we should be continually having year after year and expecting that somebody somewhere is eventually gonna do something. Mm. Well, I think your book is terrific. I highly recommend it for every rank of law enforcement to read it. I wish I had it earlier in my career to help me make uh, informed decisions and think things out um, in dealing with uh, individual offenders and, and certainly in large demonstrations and protests that, that um, you know, get uh, out of control. So thanks again, uh, Sid Heal, for your expertise and your advice and uh, everything you've said to us today. Uh, we welcome you and thanks so much. Thanks. Well, to our listeners, thanks again for listening. And what do you think? Have you had extensive force option training from verbal commands to physical restraints to force and weapons? We'd love to hear from you. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave us a review and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. And you can get in touch with me and the Policing Matters team at policingmatters at police1.com. That's police1one, O-N-E. Drop us a note to share your ideas, suggestions, feedback, or just to say hello. Your letter may be read in a future mailbag episode. Stay safe. And I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Take care. <laughs>